I'm, I'm excited about this new series we're starting today, and uh, it's called True Spirituality. Hopefully, you've got your Bible in front of you there, or your technology device, and you've got uh, a pen. We're going to be taking some notes as we study God's Word this morning, and I'd invite you to pull out that message outline that's inside your worship guide. True Spirituality. It's what we're going to be studying for the next few weeks, and uh, you'll hear me talk about that over and over again. What does it truly mean to be spiritual? What does it truly mean to be a Christ follower? Those two things can be different, but we're going to study those things together. Now, um, I'm excited also because not only is this going to be connecting us in on Sundays, it's going to be connecting us in on Wednesdays. And before we uh, kind of start, start and study God's Word this morning, I just want to mention a couple of things. Um, good to have Fred Brennan out of the hospital. Now, Fred is actually not... Yeah. Fred's actually, he's part of our finance team. He's, out, he's actually out of the room right now. But uh, we've been praying for Fred all week long. Good to have him out of the hospital. I told you guys last week about Jose, and we were praying for him. Jose continues to do well. We don't know exactly what happened, what that episode was all about. We're praying for Jose as well. Well, as we get ready to study God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to bow your heads and just pray a prayer of openness that God's Word would do what we know God's Word can do. The Bible says it can penetrate past bone and marrow straight to our spirits. So God, do that with us this morning. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for who you are. And we, the Bible says that you said it, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And this morning, we're going to focus in on you, Jesus. We invite you to be uh, the truth in our lives, that you would speak your word into our souls, make it relevant for where we live, where we work, and where we play. And Lord, here's our, our invitation. Our spirits and our minds will be open. Come mold, shape us to be more like you, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so today I'm going to do an overview um, of, of this whole series that I'm going to do, and then we're going to break it apart. But one of the first things I want you to know, you got that outline in front of you? I normally don't even talk about this, but would you pay attention today for a minute to my sermon title? I'm calling this message, uh, God's Dream for You. And I want you to think about that the whole time I'm sharing from God's Word today. What is God's dream for you. Now, if you have your pen, I want you to go ahead and fill in that first blank. And that first blank is simply this, that every parent has a dream for their child or for their children. That's every parent. If you've been a parent, uh, if, you've, if you're now a grandparent, you know what it's like to have dreams for your children. And here's the funny thing. The reason I say that is that sometimes when it comes to God, we make things so you know, we, we try to distance ourselves so much, or we make them so theological that we forget that we are made in the image of God, and sometimes the very things that we feel and that we do and that we are, we are that way because of that's who God is. And, you know, we have dreams for our children, and God has dreams for His children. Now, just to help you understand kind of the emotion and the thought of all that, let me just kind of back you up and tell you a little bit about my story, but in, while I'm telling my story... Why don't you possibly think about your story, if you have a story? I was sitting at Emory University in seminary in grad, in grad school. My wife is uh, left that morning just to go teach like normal. She was about eight, eight, 8.9 weeks, uh, a month pregnant. And um, I'm in class, and the door opens up, and somebody motions for me to come, and they say, your wife's having a baby. You need to get to the hospital. And, and I rushed out of the room, and they led me to a phone, and I got her on the phone, and she said, it's no big deal, don't hurry, but I'm at the hospital, and they said, we're going to have Abigail today. And I did about more than that car could do from Emory University to the hospital where she was waiting for. You know, I thought I was going to blow that engine. I was nervous, and I was excited. But fast forward all the hours that we wait, and they allowed me to be in the room when all of a sudden I heard that first cry and Abigail came out. She was a month early. She was covered in goo, literally, vernix. I mean, she was covered in this white stuff. She was early, and they had to keep her for a couple of days. But I'll never forget putting this 5 pounds, 13 ounces, little bitty thing in my arms. I rushed out to see my mom. I rushed out to see Julie's mom and dad. I was in tears. I was, but that, I was sitting there looking at that little girl thinking about all that she would become, all that she would do. And I never, and by the way, that's, if, you're, if, you, if you're a parent, 
You know that just doesn't happen with that child, and you never dream again for, for your other children. I mean, my goodness, when, I, when Andrew was born, I'll never forget, in the hospital that night, Julie laying in one bed, and they, they, they had me, I had a whole other bed for myself. And I just remember looking at Andrew. I don't know if you ever noticed about Andrew. He's sitting in the back there. Andrew's got big eyes, and he had big eyes even when he was a little baby, and he was just looking at me with these big eyes. And I would just remember praying over him and dreaming, what about this? I remember, I remember thinking, you know, with Abigail and with Andrew, and then later on with Alex. I mean, Alex, Alex had this fuzzy-looking hair. He looked like a Brillo pad, you know, and, and he had, and, 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 and there he was, you know. Um, and, and every one of my children were different. I just remember those moments thinking to myself, I wonder, God, are they going to be musicians? I'm a musician. Are they going to be smart? Are they going to be athletic? You know, and I wondered, God, I wonder what they're going to do. Wonder what one day they'll do. And I started dreaming for my children even then. And if you're if you're a parent, and maybe if you're not a parent, you, you can still imagine that every parent has a dream for their children. And and what's funny is that um, those dreams change over time. You know, I remember when I was first, when I was just a young dad, my 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 prayers were for them. You know, and my dreams for them were, God, what what's, what are they going to be like? And I, I thought about what they might what they might do or, or what their hobbies might be or what their strengths might be. But then when they started school later on, you know, now these kids are growing up a little bit, my dreams and my prayers changed a little bit. I just started saying, God, I, I, I just pray, and I'm dreaming for good friends for them, hoping for good friends for them. They would have a place. I'm hoping they do good in school. I'm dreaming they do good in school, you know. And then the children get older, and I think your dreams change again. I mean, at some point you start talking about talking to God and dreaming for their job. They find a place where they're, they're fulfilled, that they are using their strengths, their talents. It's funny how your dreams change. And I bet if we were to send a microphone around this place, especially to those of you who have adult children, and if we could hear from you about how your dreams have changed. I mean, it's funny if you think about it. When our kids get older, we don't, pray those, we don't pray those prayers anymore. We don't even have those dreams anymore about, you know, will they be smart and will they be athletic? We're on the different things. And in the end, it's really not about what they're going to do or the friends they might have or how they might be talented. It's not about that stuff when they get older. You know what it's about? It's about who they are and the dream that they would be so connected with God and that they would always stay connected with us. I mean, we want our kids to be still connected with us. And so that, that dream that we get to when they're older, that's part of how we live as parents. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute, because the question is, why? Why do we have dreams for our kids? And I think the answer is that God has embedded in the heart of every father, and that God has embedded in the heart of every mother the power to dream for our children. Why? Because it's what He does. For his children. Guys, God's got a dream for you. He's had a dream for you before you were ever breathing your first breath. God has a dream for you. Now write this one down. What's God's dream? We're going to unpack that over the next few weeks. But that's what it really means to be truly spiritually, truly alive, is to live into God's dream. Here's what I want you to write down. God's dream for you can be said, kind of summed up in a little nutshell, that God's dream for you is to make you like his son. He wants you to think like his son. He wants you to act like his son. He wants you to speak like his son. He wants you to be like his son. And over the next six weeks, if you'll hang out with me and if you'll study with me, and especially if you plug in on Wednesday night, you're going to get a picture of what it really means to be truly becoming like Jesus, being born alive, alive in your spirit, being truly spiritual. What does it mean to be truly spiritual? But God has a dream for uh, you and me to become like his son. The Bible says, and I don't have time to read those scriptures there, but one scripture says that you have been, before your destiny, your predestiny, was that you would be conformed to the image of Christ and that God wants to work his, this, this, the image of his son into your life. Now, here's what I want to press in on you. You ready? Listen to this. There is a crisis in Christianity right now. There is a crisis in Christianity, and there's a crisis in America. And simply put, it is this. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christ followers, call themselves spiritual, you know. They don't, have, they don't always call themselves religious, but they call themselves spiritual. And they, they call themselves Christians, but they're not really living like Christians. Now, this past week, 
I'm going to kind of unpack this crisis a little bit for you, but this past week I was um, in Indianapolis at a, at a conference for, uh, for folks who help plant churches, folks who help start churches, folks who help church growth. And I wanted to share some stuff with you, but um, we have a new piece of technology that we're trying out this morning. So allow us a little bit of buffer if we don't get it quite right, all right? What I want to do is I want to, I'm, I think I have the ability to write on my iPad and have it show up on the screen. And I want to invite, because I don't have it in your outline today, I want to share with you something I heard this past week at my conference. And I want you to maybe write it down so you can remember it as well. And so what I want to share with you is kind of an understanding about Christianity in America, all right? Now, I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about America. Now, there are 25%, 25% of people in America who say that they have, they're, they're not, they're not uh, Christian at all, okay? 25% say they are not Christian. Now, what's interesting about that 25% to kind of break it down a little bit, half of that 25% say they are, um, they are other religions, okay? So they would say they are uh, Hindu or Muslim or some type of other spirituality. We'll just call that other, okay? Other. Now, there are other religions. They have, they, they, they're not Christians, but they still would consider themselves spiritual. And then about half that number, they call themselves secular, okay? Meaning, not necessarily that they're atheists, but they just, they're not about religion. They're not about spirituality. They're just secular folks, all right? Now, that's 25% of the American population. And maybe you've heard this before, but the other 75% identify themselves as Christian. 75% of the people in the, living in the United States identify themselves as Christians. Now, let's break that down a little bit, okay? Now, 75% of them saying they're Christians... Here's how you can understand that. Statistically, when it happens, when you break it down, what does that 75% look like? One-third of those people, one-third of them, does that appear up there? It appears up there, but it doesn't appear here. Uh, one-third of those people, they actually would say they're, they're Christian. They would say they are spiritual. But what's interesting is they only have a spiritual memory. They grew up in church, or they were baptized in the church, but they don't have a church, and they would say they don't read the Bible regularly, they don't pray regularly, but they would say they're Christian, even though they don't really do anything that we would normally associate with a Christ follower. So we'll just call those folks cultural Christians, all right? Cultural Christians. Because they don't have a church, they don't pray regularly, they don't read their Bible, they just have a memory of something that happened in their past, mom and daddy, maybe mom and daddy were Christians, and they kind of consider themselves a Christian because of that. Here's another third. There's another third that I think we would call not culturally Christian, just they're Christians because they live in an American culture that most other people are Christians. We would call this third of people who identify themselves as Christians, we would call them congregationally Christian, all right? congregationally Christian. Now, what do you mean by that, Stephen? Well, what I mean by that is these are people who, who when you ask them if they're Christ followers or if they're spiritual, they would actually have a church. They could actually name a church that they were part of that they, they went to every once in a while. Now, these folks, interestingly, they, they say they don't read their Bible regularly. They don't even pray necessarily regularly, but they do go to church every few times in a year. As a matter of fact, around Harvest Point here, we've talked about Christmas and Easter-only people, right? People who only come to church at Christmas or Easter, maybe one or two more times a year. These, these are people that you would call congregationally Christian. They don't do the things that we kind of think of as the, 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 you know, the rebar of Christians, the, the deeper stuff of Christianity, but at least they have a church. And then you have one-third. And we would call that one-third, the last third, I think I would call them convictionally Christian, meaning that they have uh, a church home, they read the Bible regularly, they say they pray regularly, and they practice the spiritual disciplines in their life. These are people who have real deep beliefs about what is truth and about the Bible, and these are people who call themselves convictionally deep belief systems. They are Christian. Now, I want you to think about what I've just shared with you guys. There is a crisis in America right now. And here is the crisis stated very clearly. Look at this. Look at what I'm circling right here. See that right there? See that portion? 
See, what I'm going to recommend to you during this series is that those folks right there that call themselves Christians and they don't really practice a lot of what you and I think as the practice of what Christians should be doing day in and day out, the teachings of Jesus, reading His teachings, praying to Him regularly, trying to be involved in ministry in the world, if they're not doing that, I want you to think about how many Christians we have call themselves Christians but aren't really living as Christians. And the greatest need, here's, here's what I'm suggesting to you, the greatest need in America today is not going to be found in the government. It's not going to be found in our school systems. The greatest need in America today is for Christians to actually start acting and living like Christians. I want you to think about that. What does it mean to be truly spiritual? What does it mean to come alive in Christ and to live as a deeper Christ follower? What does that really look like? You know, that little area that I circle right there, I would call those people nominal Christians, you know, grouped together. What does that mean, Stephen? In name only. They're Christians in name only. They're, they're not really practicing this thing every day, living and breathing in a relationship with Jesus. And that's a crisis. The greatest need is for Christians to start living like Christians. Now, let's go back to God's dream. You ready? Got your pen? What's God's dream for us? God's dream for every child of His, I've already said, is to, to be like His son. But what I want to recommend to you is it also is to become a Romans 12 Christian. Write that down. Romans 12, Christian. Now, this study that I'm going to do with you for the next six weeks is all about Romans 12. Romans 12. Now, Romans 12, what is Romans 12, Stephen? Have I ever read that before? Romans 12 is the, I shared this via email earlier this week, Romans 12 is the first scripture that revolutionized my life as a baby Christian. I'll tell you my story, and I'll make it kind of brief. I won't tell it all to you, but when I received... um, uh, the Lord into my life, a couple of years later, I was on a beach in South Carolina, and I felt like God called me to forever in my life be a minister. I had a full-time vocational call over my life. I didn't even know what that meant. I thought I was going to be in concert ministry. I was a musician. You know, I like to sing. And, and I answered that call by taking a youth mission trip. Uh, my first answer to that call was taking a youth mission trip to France for the summer of my freshman year in high school. So as a freshman, I went to France. And I'll never forget that summer between my freshman and my sophomore year going to France and being over there with all these other young Christians, and we were building homes for the homeless. Well, I went with this mission organization that was out of Bethany, Missouri. And I don't, to this day, I don't know what their background was. I don't think they were part of our global denomination. I don't know whether they were fundamental or Baptist or what they were. I really don't know. I was too young, I guess, to even pay attention. But what I do know is that they were pretty strict about some things, okay? And so uh, when you came on this mission trip to France, by the way, I love my music, you know? What teenager doesn't love his music? When you come on this trip, you don't bring any music with you, right? And I had my Walkman, right? I had my Walkman and my, my things. I said, come on, I got to take my music. They took my music away from me. I was like, what? Uh, that, 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 that got me, you know? They took my music away from me. They said, not going to have that. And they said a couple other things that were really hard for a teenager to process. But here was, the, here was the catch. They said, we want you to memorize Romans 12 and Romans 13 this entire summer. When you go home, you're going to know Romans 12 and Romans 13 backwards and forwards. If I say Romans 12... Eight, you're going to be able to quote eight on the spot. And here's how it's going to work. Every day while you're on that work site, you're going to be talking with other people and you're going to be memorizing these scriptures because when you come to dinner at the end of the day and you've been sweaty and now you've got your shower and you're ready to eat, you don't get to eat unless you know the memory verse of the day. I said, what? And they were serious. And you know what it made us serious? So all during the day, all during the day, we were mixing concrete, we were laying bricks, we were, we, were, we were doing all kinds of stuff on that work site. But you know what we were doing? We were quoting some scripture. That's what we were doing. And uh, by the time it got time to go to the, uh, to the meal thing, you know, we stood in the line. And there was an adult standing right there. And Romans 12, the first day, Romans 12, 1, what is it? And every person, even those who had a little more of the learning difficulties, they had to come by and say that scripture. And... When you memorize the scripture, guys, it stays with you. And, and, and at first, it was a road exercise for me. It was just learning scripture. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, it was just a rote exercise. But then every morning, and here's the beauty of it all, every morning, 
they would say, you know what, the first 40 minutes of your day, you're going to climb one of these mountains in France, and you're just going to be you and God. And it's where I learned how to do my 15 minutes of chair in the Bible, you know, that I talk. It's how I learned how to do my talk, my time alone with God. And as a baby Christian who doesn't know a lot about Scripture, I can tell you that one of the first things I did was I picked up the Bible, and I began studying the big stories. I'll never forget the very first scripture sitting in France that I ever studied. I remembered Samson. I remember Samson. Man's man, right? I said, he's got to be in here somewhere. Let me go read about Samson, you know? And I read about Samson. I read about David. But there was a time at which finally I got back to the scripture they had asked. And I said, you know what? If they're having us memorize Romans 12 and 13, it must be for a reason. And I started getting deep into that, and it revolutionized my relationship with Jesus and the way I lived in the world. It cleaned my mind out. It helped my heart get right. And that's what I want to challenge you. Listen, Romans 12, it it isn't the end-all, be-all of what it really means to be a Christian, but it is an incredible snapshot. It is the Cliff Notes version of what it means to live like Jesus in the world. That one chapter, it it is the movie trailer that tells you all the thing in one little snippet about what it means to be a Christ follower. When I was writing my dissertation, you know, this long 200-page book, they said, you've got to put it in 100 words, what is this whole thing about? And it's called an abstract. Romans 12 is the abstract of what it means to be a Christ follower. It's the little paragraph that tells you the big story, okay? And what I want you to do with me is I want you to dream, understand, perceive God's dream, His dream for you in Romans 12. And we're going to dig deep here, okay? So let's talk about Romans 12. Remember, today's an overview, and then we're going to unpack it every week as we go along. Romans 12, what is it really about? You see that big block in the middle of your page? At the heart of Romans 12, it's about five relationships, okay? Relationships. Now, here's what I want you to hear me say. Christianity is not about rules. It's not about religion. At the heart of Christianity, it's about relationships. And while we study Romans 12, it's going to talk about five key relationships and how you live out those relationships in the world. And not only is Romans 12 going to help us understand those five key relationships, it's going to tell us not just what they are, but how we're supposed to respond to them. So it's, it's relational. You might want to write that in your margin, just to the left of that big black box. It's relational and it's practical. It tells me the relationships, and then it tells me what I'm supposed to do with it. It's measurable, and that's how it works. So let's do this. Let's go back, and I'm going I'm to real quickly, I'm going to draw again, and I'm going to try to do a little a drawing, and you can flip over maybe your outline in a blank spot, and you can draw, and you can kind of follow along with me and get what I'm talking about here, okay? So what are we talking about? Uh, let me get here. So first relationship, and I'll just draw it with a little arrow, okay? Uh-oh, let, let me get off the red. Let me get to the white. You can see that better. Just draw a little arrow up and down. All right? A little arrow. And we'll, we'll call that a God relationship, okay? I'm just going to write God right there. The most important relationship you will ever have is this relationship. And so Romans 12 starts there, okay? How are we supposed to live with God. Matter of fact, if you got that outline, you'll notice that's point number one today. How are we supposed to live with God, the relationship with God? Hey, you want to go ahead and fill that in, fill that blank in? We'll do it later on as well, but just write the word surrendered. So I'm just going to write, uh-oh, I'm just going to write the, the word uh, surrendered. So when it comes to God, God wants us to live a life of surrender with Him. That's the first relationship. Now, the second relationship, I'm just going to draw a picture of the world. And I am no artist or the son of an artist, uh, so give me a little bit of grace, okay? I'm just going to, somebody told me earlier it looks like a great baseball. Um, I'm I'm just going to draw a picture of the world there. And what Romans is going to do, Romans 12, 2, is going to tell us how we're supposed to live with the world, all right? Now, again, the word that, that I'm going to use is separate. The Bible says we're not supposed to look like the world We are supposed to be separate from the world. What does that really mean and look like? And we're going to unpack that a little bit. All right. The third relationship, talking about five relationships and how we're supposed to live in response to those relationships. And in Romans 12, verse 3, uh, we start hearing about this relationship. And this one is a very important relationship because it's the most personal relationship of all. It's me. Okay. It's self. It's myself. 
and you have thoughts, you have images, perceptions about yourself, how are you supposed to live in, with you, you know? And the Bible, very clearly, Romans 12, 3, it begins and it unpacks that for us. It says we're supposed to live in sober self-assessment. Not too high, not too low, spot on, understanding who you are based upon what God says you are, okay? Fourth relationship. You tracking with me here? So we've talked about a relationship with God, relationship with the world, relationship with yourself. You know me, your self-assessment. So surrendered, separate, sober. Here's the next one, and I'm, I'm just going to do it with a little, a little happy face, all right? These, are, these should be happy people. We're going to put a little halo over them, and we'll call these other believers, okay? So these are believers. These believers, these are people who believe in Jesus. And in Romans 12, um, the, the, and beginning in, uh, in verse 9, the writer of Romans, uh, Paul, is going to tell us, how are you supposed to live with other Christ followers? How are you supposed to live in the family of God? And what we're going to hear is the key word there is in a life of serving in love. Serving in love. And then this last relationship uh, that Romans 12 unpacks for us, and again, I'm going to do a little smiley face because these people can smile too, even though they really don't understand why they're smiling. And, um, and I'm just going to call these people unbelievers, all right, or non-believers, all right, non-believers, because gonna, gonna, you, you need to know how to relate and how to be in relationship with non-believers. And, and uh, Romans 12, beginning in verse 14, tells us how we are supposed to live with non-believers. And the key to it is supernaturally responding to evil and hurt with good. So the key is supernaturally responding. Now, I know you can't read my handwriting there, but supernaturally responding. You see, now one more time. Let's unpack these a little bit. And if you'll join me on this journey, every week I'm going to focus in on one of these relationships and we're going to read some scripture about how you really do this. But number one today, track over with me. Your relationship with God. And what did we say? Surrendered to God. It's a word we sing in our songs. Can we live it out in our lives? To be surrendered to God is what it really means to be truly spiritual. The Bible says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, and I would add sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer, circle that word, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So here's what's important. And I got to go fast because we've got five different points I want to share with you. But when we talk about this surrendered thing, what we're talking about is having a moment in time where you surrender your life to God, okay? Now, I like to think of that a couple of different ways. You bent the knee, you know? You bent the knee and you said, okay, God, me before you, you're king. And you had a moment in time where you surrendered your life to him. I also like to think about it this way. And I don't have these in my pocket because I don't carry them on Sundays. But, you know, you gave the keys away. You gave the keys away, and you said, okay, God, I'm not driving the car anymore. You're driving the car. I, it's not, I, you drive the car of my life from here on out. And you had a moment in time when you surrendered. Now, everybody, listen, everybody should have a moment in time where they surrendered. But here's the beautiful thing. Surrender isn't just about a singular moment in time. Surrender is a pattern we start to live in daily. Remember last week, salt and light and connecting with God? Surrender is this thing we're doing with God over and over again. Because we're humans, it's easy to take control, isn't it? It's easy to take the car keys back. It's easy to not stay on bended knee and say, ha, ah, me today, God. But what God wants you and me to do is he wants us to live this life of offering our bodies as living sacrifices. So we're going to unpack that. But here's what I want you to know. Here's the big point we'll be unpacking next week. There is a missing ingredient in that nominally Christian, remember that big, that big group of people who call them? There's a missing ingredient, ingredient in their life, and it can be missing in your life and in my life too. And, that, and that, that missing ingredient is because we try so hard, we try so hard, we do it on our own strength, and we haven't really surrendered to God's power and His Spirit in our life. And if you really want power, you might want to write that in the margin of number one. If you really want power in your life, you have got to learn surrender. And let me tell you, I don't have time to talk about this. We'll talk about it next week. But you want to know why Jesus had the power Jesus had? You want to know why Jesus did the miracles Jesus did? It was because he lived the most surrendered life that has ever lived 
on the planet to the Father. All right? So that first relationship is not, Christianity is not about trying hard, all right? It's not. It's not about, oh, I got to do this. I got to do that for God to love me. It's not about that stuff. It's about surrendering to God and just saying, God, I offer my body as a living sacrifice to you. You use me. You do with me what you want. I offer you me. That's the first relationship. Talk about that a lot next week, okay? Now, the, the second relationship, going to point number two. The second relationship is that relationship with the world, right? And what did we say? Separate from the world. Separate from the world. Uh, Romans 12.2 says, and be not, by the way, watch this. It's a negative command, and then it's a positive command. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, right? So it's a negative. So don't be conformed, but you be transformed by the renewing of your, say that word out loud with me, by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to prove, to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when we talk about this, what are you talking about, Stephen? Listen, in short, what we're talking about here is if you really want to live a truly alive life in Christ, you want to come alive, it means looking at the world and seeing what the world looks like and saying, you know what? That was never God's intention for me. So what are, the, what are the values of the world? We can name, man, we could put a list a mile long in this room. Money, sex, power, privilege, prestige, possessions, all this stuff. That's, that's what the world's after, right? I mean, just watch TV. Just, just, just pay attention to the magazines as you're checking out of Walmart, you know, and you'll see all that the world is about. And what, what, what God is saying to us in Romans 12, too, is don't be conformed to that. You're not supposed to look like that. You're supposed to look different. You're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of a new mind that Christ puts inside of us. Now, by the way, I am a personal expert when it comes to this relationship, understanding the, when you don't do it right. I remember as a young Christ follower, even in my, in my college days, I remember struggling with this thing of knowing I was supposed to be separate from the world, but being really challenged to be not wanting to conform to its image because there was something in me that wanted to kind of conform and be like the world. And can I just tell you, there is nothing more miserable because I've been there. I've been at a place of guilt and, 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 and deep uh, hurt in my own life. There's nothing more miserable than a Christ follower, blood-bought in the, in the blood of Jesus, forgiven and washed in sin, who knows he's not supposed to be conformed to this world, but he's supposed to be transformed. There's nothing more miserable than living with one foot in the world and one foot, one foot in the kingdom of God and trying to at some point be, this is who I am, I'm a Christ follower, I follow Jesus, and then at the other point, just trying to do all the things that the world does. And man, I know what it's like to go to church on a Sunday morning after you've blown it on a Friday night. And it's a miserable miserable place to be. And God's dream for you, listen, God's dream for you when it comes to your relationship with him is that you'd be surrendered. Then he's going to give you power like you don't know. And God's dream for you is when it comes to you and the world, that you wouldn't look like the world, that you'd be like a shining light, that you'd be different than the world. You would be transformed, not conformed to the world. Now, what are you saying, Stephen? What am I talking about? That miserable, right in the little margin of that little point there, that's where you get peace. When you can get that world, that foot out of the world and say, you know what? I'm not going to be conformed to the world anymore. I'm going to be a kingdom follower. I'm going to look different. I'm going to talk different. I'm going to act different. I'm going to think different. This is who I am. Then peace comes into your life. Write that word. Peace comes into your life. So you get power. And you get peace because you're not tormented on the inside anymore. You really are being transformed and being separate from the world. Look at that third relationship real quickly. We talked about your relationship with God. We talked about your relationship with the world. We're going to talk about that on, in just a couple of weeks. Now let's talk about your relationship with yourself, all right? Your relationship with you, your thoughts, your, your images, your mind, you. Now what Paul, Paul is going to unpack here in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8 is he's not only going to tell you about you and how you should think about yourself, he's going to tell you about your spiritual family that, he, that God birthed you to be in, and then he's going to tell you about the gifts that he's given to you so that you understand you, that you really understand you, okay? So it, it, he begins by saying, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself 
more highly than you ought. He's saying you should think sober thinking about yourself. Not too high, not too low, God's way. Sober thinking, rather think of yourself with sober judgment in according to the measure. And then he goes on, I don't have time to talk about today. We'll unpack it uh, three weeks from right now. He talks about the family that you were born into, a spiritual family, how how you are part of the family of God and how you're supposed to live in that family. He talks about how he's going to give you gifts and how he wants you to function those gifts. And here's the goal, that when you stand and look at yourself in the mirror, you would have sober judgment about yourself and that you would say, you know what? I don't see a person like every other person. I see a person that tries to follow Jesus Christ. I see a person who's trying to become like Jesus every day. You would like yourself, and and you wouldn't be down on yourself, and you wouldn't be up on yourself, but you would see the person that God sees, and then you'd see the family that God's provided and see them in the right way, and that you'd be operating in those gifts. Now, can I just tell you real quickly, our world is full of people trying to live in image management, I need to take all that stuff off. I forgot to take that off. Oh, it's off? Oh, it's on mine. Uh, sorry about that. Has it been off already? I don't know. There's a lot of people in our world living in, with image management every day. What clothes am I going to wear? How am I going to look? This and that. What car am I going to drive? And, and, and here, what we're talking about here is when you really understand who you are and you have a sober assessment of yourself, you don't, you, you, it takes your mind away from some of that stuff, okay? And, and here's the cool thing, and I've seen this happen so many times with, with people who come into our church. They start to get plugged in. They start really to surrender their life to Christ, and then they start understanding that God's given them gifts. All of a sudden, they realize they have a purpose for the first time. They start dreaming of ministry, how God's going to use their talents and their skills. Write the word purpose next to point number three. They get a purpose, Because once you really understand who you are, then you can understand what you were put on earth to do. Let me give you a case in point. We had a guy in our church who had been been going to church for the greater part of his life. And when we started Harvest Point, he started coming to Harvest Point. Now, he was an older gentleman, and and he and I started meeting regularly for breakfast. But I realized that I, and I don't necessarily, I try to practice the gift of encouragement, but it doesn't show up on my top gifts. But I started just uh, encouraging this guy around the gifts that I saw him. He's phenomenal with... uh, Phenomenal with numbers, really, really good at numbers. He, when he spoke, people listened. He didn't even see that. He didn't even see that when he spoke, people, he was like an E.F. Hutton. I mean, people listened when he spoke. And that he was, he was uh, people looked at him like, like he was a godly, righteous person. And we started talking about this together, and he, he was very honest with me. He said, you know, you say that, Stephen, but I don't feel that way. Why? Because his image of himself, his self-assessment was way low. He viewed himself like kind of, you know, like almost Paul. Paul said, I'm kind of, you know, kind of like a worm. I feel like a worm, but I know who I am, really, you know. He viewed himself. He, did, he didn't see his gifts. He didn't know his leverage for the kingdom of God. And as I began to speak into him his own identity, his own gifts, the role he could play in our family right here at Harvest Point, he started living into the dream. And all of a sudden, he started becoming a leader. He started using his gifts. He started calling me. How about this one? He started calling me his best friend. I was like, what? I didn't even, I I knew we were friends, but okay, we're best friends, you know. But you know what had happened? Somebody had come along to paint a different picture of who he was than he'd ever had of himself, who he really was, what his gifts were, who he was in the family, and how God wanted to use him in ministry. Nobody had ever helped him do that before, Right? Paul says in Romans, beginning in verse 3, this is who we are. We'll unpack that more. Flip that, flip that, flip that outline over for a minute. Um, so what's that fourth relationship? We're talking about relationship with God. We're talking about relationship with the world. Relationship with God is surrendered. Your relationship with the world is separate, right? Your relationship with yourself is sober in self-assessment. Here's the fourth relationship we're going to talk about, and that's your relationship with other believers. Now, what's that supposed to look like? Serving in love. Not some fake love, not some counterfeit love, not some, you know, worked up love. Serving in love. The, Paul, Paul in Romans 12, uh, verse 9 starts to unpack this for us. And he says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And then notice all the one another's. He says, be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Never be lacking a zeal. And then he talks about how we're supposed to live. So he gives us this picture of who we're supposed to be together as the body of Christ. Now, what would that look like for us? And, and the picture is that there are these people, this amazing thing called the church, right? These other Christ followers that are supposed to be in your world. And here's how it's supposed to work. You are supposed to, with other Christ followers, actually like them. <laughs> how about that? You actually like other Christians. Wow, okay. Okay, God. 
But beyond that, you're actually supposed to love them, and you're supposed to pray for them, and you're supposed to serve them, and you are supposed to be involved in their lives daily, encouraging them. This is what it looks like to be in the family of God. You're serving one another in love. Jesus spoke about this in John 13. He said, man, the world, you know how the world's going to know you're my followers? How you'll be different? Because you'll love one another. Truly, truly love one another. He said, that's how the, the world's going to know you're my followers. Now, would you dream with me God's dream for a minute? What if you were so involved with God's people that you just felt the love of God and you love them so much when you're driving to work, you were thinking about other Christ followers, you were praying for them, you were wanting to serve them whenever they had a need in their life. That's God's dream for God's children, that we love each other that way, we serve one another right, like that. Now, you know what? Here's, write the word in your outline there just to the left, the word presence. When you really understand what the church was meant to be in your life, you'll understand that the church was meant to be one of God's most present, tangible forces in your life to show you His love. Now listen, I, I know a lot of you, if not you know, 90% of you, I probably know you at some level. But here's what I know about probably 100% of us. Most of us, are, we're not, we're not going to this week have a tangible moment with God where we wake up and God's standing at the foot of our bed, you know, an angel or a vision or... We're not going to have a moment like that, most of us. You're not going to be driving down the road and, and you're going to, you know, you're going to have a vision of God on a billboard. And most of us don't, don't do that, okay? Most of us, the way we experience God's presence is because of somebody else. You're doing that right now. You're experiencing the presence of God because of another brother, or how about these brothers and sisters who come and prepare and they break the bread of life, they share God's word with you, they love you, they care about you. How cool is that? The presence of God, God's dream, His presence, most of the time is going to be revealed to you by somebody with flesh, right? Somebody bones and the Spirit of God putting them, and you'll have a kinship between you, and they're loving you, and you're loving them, and you're helping each other live like Christ. That's the presence of God, how we become more and more connected in with God, even by con- being connecting in with others. Last one, write this one down. Your, your, your relationship with non-believers, okay? What, how am I supposed to act, Stephen, with non-believers? And see, Paul was wanting to tell the people in Rome, by the way, Ro- people in Rome were being thrown in front of the lions in the Colosseum, right, by unbelievers. They were experiencing hatred, evil, wickedness. And Paul is writing to them, and he says, listen, I want you to know how you're supposed to live among unbelievers or non-believers, and he turns the whole thing on his head, and he said, you're going to have evil in your world, they're going to come at you, and they're going to do harm and hurt and damage to you, but I want you to know how you're supposed to respond to them. You are supposed to supernaturally, that's with God's power, take their evil and turn it around and give them back good. Read with me what the Bible says, and I don't have time to read the whole thing, we'll unpack this the very last week, but, he, but, but Paul said, bless those who persecute you, bless, bless and do not curse. He goes on and says, don't take revenge, because God said, revenge is mine. You leave that to me. And he says, this one grabbed me. Boy, when I, I was a freshman in high school, and I started memorizing this scripture. It blew my mind. He says, he said, if, you, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will pour burning coals on his head. I was like, oh, okay, what's that mean? Okay, God. See, what, what, what Paul is saying, when it comes to your relationship with the world, listen carefully, because I'm going to close down here. When it comes to your relationship with the world, you're going to have evil done to you. You're going to have pain come your way. Let me break that down, how it's really going to happen. You are going to be ripped off. Somebody is going to steal something from you. Somebody is going to say some hurtful words to you. Somebody is going to betray you and betray your confidence. Somebody is is going to uh, hurt you or leave you or walk out on you. And by the way, even beyond what non-believers do to us, did you know that Christians still get cancer? That Christians can be driving down the road and evil happen to them? Drunk drivers hit Christians too, right? Right? Evil and wickedness is going to happen to you, no matter who you are. This is, this is who you are. And the, the, the key is, now listen, what's, what's, what's true spirituality? What is true spirituality? And, and Romans 12 
beginning in verse 14, says, true spirituality is whenever evil is done to you, you turn around for good. You give them good. You be like your father. You give good away. That's who you are. And the question that we're going to unpack on that day is, how in the world do you overcome evil with good? How can I really do that? And then we're going we're to study Joseph. We're going to study how in Joseph's life, great evil was done to him, but he never lost his GPS, and he never misunderstood who his father was. He understood that his father wanted him to do any evil thing done to him. Still, God meant it for good, and he was to return good even out of the evil that came his way. Let me just pause here for a minute. Are you kind of getting where we're going in this series? Are you getting it? We're going to talk about five relationships and how you're supposed to live in those relationships. And we're going to address one of the biggest crises on the planet, that there are Christians who call themselves Christians, but they don't really live like Christians. And here's my goal. I hope that you will plug in. But more than that, I hope that as God plants his seed in you, that you'll begin to see good transformation even in your own world. Let me tell you what my hope is for me, and I kid you not. I was praying about this series this week. And it just dawned on me. You know what God's dream for me? If it really is, grasp this, paradigm shifting. If God's dream really is for me to live like his son, you know what that means for me? It means that while I'm driving my car this week, he wants me to drive my car like Jesus would drive my car. And when I'm talking to my employees this week, He wants me to talk to them like Jesus would talk to my employees. What does it mean to be truly spiritual? Romans 12 is just a snapshot. But when it comes to living with God, in a walking, talking, it means we live a life of surrender. In our relationship with the world, we live a life that's separate from the world, not looking like the rest of the world. When it comes to our relationship with myself, I'm sober in my self-assessment. Not too high, not too low, and I understand who my family is and who my gifts are. When it comes to my relationship with believers, I understand that that's how I'm going to experience the presence of God most of the time. And I need to serve them in love and let them love me. And when it comes to my relationship with non-believers, that's how I'm going to experience, uh, oh, I forgot to give you the P word there. Write that down, perspective. Perspective is how you overcome evil with good. And man, did, jo- did, did, um, did Joseph have perspective. You overcome evil with good. Now, I want to close with a final thought here. And, and it's a dangerous thought, okay? I want, to, I want to warn you of something. The easy thing as we're journeying for the next six weeks is for you to think of these five relationships like check marks, okay? Okay, I'm going to mark off God. I'm surrendering to Him today, and I'm going to make sure I'm taking care of the world. I'm not going to look like the world. And myself, I'm going to get my image of myself right and check, 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 check. And that is nothing. That is the very opposite of what I'm talking about here. Remember, Christianity is not about rules. It's not about checkboxes. It's not about you acting a certain way so that God will love you. That is not what Christianity is about. At the core of Christianity, it's about relationship, and it's just about understanding God already loves you. So what we're going to do together is we're going to explore Romans 12 together, and we're just going to say, God, how do you want me to live? Help me to live. I'm going to fail. I'm going to, I'm going to succeed. I'm going to see your strength, and sometimes I'm going to try to do my own strength. But God, I'm trusting that you're going to be transforming me to be more like your son because that's your dream for me, <laughs> God's dream for you, that you'd be like his son, you'd be a Romans 12 Christian, living the Romans 12 life, and that you'd understand it's not about rules, it's not about hoops, it's not about check boxes, <laughs> and heavens to Betsy, it ain't about religion, it's about relationship. God puts you on this planet, and he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to have a relationship, the right relationship with the world. You have a relationship with yourself, believers and non-believers. He wants you to understand what those relationships are all about. You know, as I'm closing down today, it just occurred to me that this this study we're going to be doing is a lot about people who call themselves Christians. But there might be some folks here today who, when it comes to you, you might even call yourself a Christian, but you can't name that day where you bowed that knee. You know that moment? Where you said, today, today's my day. I already had a walking, talking relationship with Jesus. I was already praying. I was already going to church. But it was on that beach in South Carolina that I said, today's my day. I go back to that moment. Today's my day. 
And you might have called yourself a Christian. You might live in a Christian home. You might have Christian mom and daddy. You might have a Christian house, a Christian car. I don't know. But here's what I know. Everybody needs that moment where they've handed over the keys. They've bowed the knee. And they've said, I surrender. And listen, if you've never done that before, there is no better day today than today. Because guess what? You can do that today, and for the next five weeks, you're going to be in a church where you're learning how to really take your steps. And Revolution 12 can revolutionize, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 12 can revolutionize you like it revolutionized me. If you want to take that step today, bow that knee and hand over those car keys, I'm just going to pray a simple prayer today. And I want you to tell me about it after the service is over, because I, I want to give you a Bible, okay? To give you a Bible. Make sure you got a Bible. And I'll even tell you how to, what the first thing you ought to study in the Bible is. But if you want to make that your prayer today, I just want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Would every, would every eye just close for a minute, every head bow? Would you give your neighbor a little bit of privacy there? Hey, if you want to bow that knee today, if you want to hand over the car keys, why don't you just pray this prayer? Today, Jesus, uh, I want to come to you and I want to personally ask you to forgive my sins. I want to start there, God. I, I have not done well. I have not done right. I have violated a holy God. And I know I'm not perfect. And so I come to you today, and I want to personally just trust you, best I know how, with this thing they call faith. I want to trust you to, to take my sins, just make them go away. Just make them go away and wash them away. And would you birth new life in me? And today, I bow my knee. I hand over the car keys, and I tell you, you are Lord. You are King, not me anymore. I trust you to be Lord, King of my life. You drive my car. You take my life. And I will follow you all of the rest of my days the best I know how. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me. I don't deserve it. I love you. I love you. Oh, that feels so good to say that, Jesus. I love you. Lord, grow us. Grow us on Sundays and grow us on Wednesdays as we go into this new Purposely Plugged In. Grow us to be like your son. And thank you, oh, Father, for having beautiful, good, and awesome dreams for us. Help us to lean into your dreams. This is our prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you, Harvest Point. Have a great week. Hope to see you Wednesday night. Praying for you to have an awesome